when the fruit's actually ready, you can shake the bunch, which you'll see here. We can put the tray underneath it, untwist the twist tie, and the fruit that's ready will drop into the tray. You wanna try it? Yeah. So grab your hand on that and just shake it as hard as you can. Nicely done, you start oh. tomorrow. Thank you. <laughs> I'll have to tell uh, the gastrobot host that I'm quitting my, quitting my job. That is Sonia Swanson, our superstar producer, and she is, in fact, leaving us, but not to harvest fruit. That's Sonia. She can do anything. Side note, if you, too, are amazing and would like to work with us, please check out gastropod.com jobs and apply by January 3rd. But back to the show. You're listening to Gastropod, the podcast that looks at food through the lens of science and history. I'm Cynthia Graber. And I'm Nicola Twilley. And this episode is all about dates. Not the online kind, or the blind kind, or even the awkward first kind. The fruit kind. Sonia actually talked us into doing this episode. I have to admit, at first, I was a little skeptical. Dates are delicious, sure, but how interesting could they be? They're just dried fruit. Never doubt a date, Cynthia. Turns out they're full of mystery, adventure, and hoochie-coochie dances. Dates also figure into all sorts of religious celebrations. Why would you break a Ramadan fast with a date and celebrate Christmas with a date? And why always the same date? It's always a medjool. Which makes me wonder, are we missing out on lots of exciting other dates? Should we be playing the field, is what I'm basically asking? All that, plus the story of 1001 Nights in the California Desert. This episode is supported by the Sloan Foundation for the Public Understanding of Science, Technology, and Economics. Gastropod is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network in partnership with ITER. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. One of the great pleasures in life is traveling, especially when there's great food waiting at your destination. When months of planning, preparation, and exploration all culminate into one perfect bite, there's nothing better. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card, made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latinx culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Yeah, I usually think of dates as like a like prune-like consistency, right? These are much more soft and... Fudgy. Fudgy, candy-like, yes. As regular listeners will know, Gastropod is a family affair, and so I roped in my partner Tim to taste some of the more unusual dates that Nikki and I got for this episode. But it still tastes like dates. Like it tastes like Christmas morning date nut bread that mom used to make. You had to call it bread so you could eat it in the morning, but it was really cake. And did it taste good? Did you like it? Yeah, it was pretty good. You put enough uh, cream cheese on it. <laughs> it's fine. Did she only make this on Christmas? Only on Christmas. This kind of shocked me. Nikki, you had said that dates were Christmas food, but I thought maybe it was just a British thing. What do I know? I'm Jewish. Sometimes I am actually correct about some things, believe it or not, folks. But yes, growing up, we always had a box of dates on the sideboard at Christmas time, and we were not alone. And a lot of this is done through mail order. This is a really successful mail order food business very early on. And dates were a really popular Christmas item to send to people. I remember as a child sending 
dates to relatives across the United States at Christmas time. That's Sarah C. Cates. I always tell people that it's C. Cates rhymes with dates. She's a professor of history at San Joaquin Delta College in California, and she wrote her thesis about the history of California's date industry. I'd just like to spend a moment more noting that I was right about Christmas and dates, but apparently that's not the only occasion Christians bust out the dates. Tadros Tadros spent his working life farming dates in California, but he came from Egypt, where dates were de rigueur for a Coptic Christian holiday earlier in the year. Yes, the red dates especially is a symbol of, they call it Naruz celebration. And that's for the mortars, the Christian that died. And then because of it is red, it simplify the blood of these mortars. And then for Muslims around the world, it's traditional to break the fast each night of the month of Ramadan with a date. We asked a reporter in Jerusalem to record a local family last spring during Ramadan. They gathered together for their iftar feast and, of course, enjoyed some dates. This is a man called Yusuf explaining that dates are the essential prequel to the meal after the day's fast. They were the first thing Muhammad would eat once the sun went down, and so it's become part of the ritual. It's a must. Dates are a must in, in the month of Ramadan. Nawal Nasrallah is originally from Iraq, and she wrote a book called Dates, A Global History. She told us the prophet loved dates, and he actually suggested that eating seven dates a day would drive away evil, and that a house without dates is a poor house indeed. According to Nawal, the date tree is actually at the center of the drama in the Muslim telling of the Garden of Eden story. She told us about an ancient stone carving that shows the date tree as the tree of life. The impression of this seal shows a man and a woman sitting face to face, and between them there is the date palm, and on the side there is the snake. And there you have it, you know, the the story of Adam and Eve and the, the tree of life and the snake. According to Muslim tradition, after God created Adam, he or she asked Adam to clip his hair and fingernails and bury them. And then a date palm tree sprung up from where the clippings were buried, full of fruit for Adam to enjoy. So he fell to the ground to worship God, and then Satan got jealous and wept tears of fury, and those tears created the thorns that now sprout from the date palm's trunk. Dates go back further than the invention of the religions that have a single god, though. A date palm was the symbol of the Sumerian goddess Inanna, the goddess of fertility and lots of other important things. There are all kinds of uh, myths and stories. In ancient Greek and Rome, they say that Apollo and his sister Artemis were born under a date palm. So why? Why is one tree, one fruit, at the center of so many religions? There is nothing you can do with this tree. The fruits, you eat them, you make wine with it, you make uh, vinegar. They, they used to roof their houses with the fronds, uh, with the trunks, for bridges, for canals. It was a very useful tree, and uh, that's how it became a valuable symbol and uh, a subject of legends in the past. Also, you have to think about where the date is from, basically the desert. Uh, The Arabian Peninsula, it's pretty much the only agricultural crop you can grow. And so for that region and into North Africa, the arid regions of the world, it is a very important crop. Michael Perugenan is professor of biology at New York University and an expert in date genetics. And he and Nawal both pointed out that date trees grow particularly well in oases in the desert. The date palm is a tree that needs a dry weather while the the dates are uh, ripening, and it needs plenty of water. The the Arabs used to say that they described the date palm as roots in water and its head is uh, up next to the sun. And it was irrigated by either by flooding or by running water in canals. But not rain, never rain. Rain damages the flowers and the growing dates. It's a very particular set of requirements that meant that dates flourish in a very specific environment. 
these desert oases. And so imagine you're riding your camel in the Sahara. You're hot, thirsty, you're hungry. And then an oasis appears ahead. Water, amazing. And then as you get closer, you realize there are dates there. And they're not just delicious and full of calories you need from all that sugar. They're also really nutritious. Nawal told us they're called the bread of the desert. In this region, dates are a staple carb, the way that wheat or potatoes or rice are elsewhere. They're long-lasting, they're portable, and they're also surprisingly rich in vitamins and minerals. Dates were the reason that early Arab sailors could make long sea voyages to trade, while their European counterparts were all suffering from scurvy. And so it makes sense that people in the region not only cherished them, but also started to grow them deliberately. So how long have people been cultivating dates? The earliest archaeological evidence of date utilization is in the, in the Gulf area probably around six to 7,000 years ago, but it's not sure whether they were just collecting wild dates or whether they were beginning to cultivate it. But definitely by about four to 5,000 years ago, there are already records of date plantations in Mesopotamia and in that area. Turns out that although dates are beloved and essential and ancient, they're also rather mysterious. Michael told us that when he started researching dates more than a decade ago, there was no central international date seed vault, for example. And it was hard to get a hold of a lot of different date varieties because a lot of their homeland was a conflict zone for one reason or another. As Michael started looking into dates, he realized that even the most basic question about the fruit is still unanswered. Well, the big debate is we actually don't know anything about where it uh, originated from. Uh, nor do we actually know what its ancestor is. So the the date palms are in the genus Phoenix, and the closest relative to date palms, cultivated date palms, is Phoenix sylvestris, which grows in India. And so there have been theories that they originated maybe somewhere in the Iran-Iraqi area, the Gulf area, Oman. There are also theories that No, they didn't originate there. They originated maybe North Africa. Michael's speciality is in plant genetics, so he decided to try to crack this cold case using DNA. He and his lab set out to sample a hundred different date varieties, although they're now up to several hundred. Michael studied the genetics of all these varieties, and he and his colleagues have been able to tease out a few things. For one, dates, when they're ripening on the tree, come in shades of two colors, red and yellow. And we figured out the gene that's responsible for that um, based on our analysis. And it's the same gene that's mutated in oil palm. It's like Kevin Bacon is scripting this, folks. Our two back-to-back palm episodes turn out to actually be related. Well, not closely related. They're 30 million years apart. It's the same gene that gives, you know, dark-colored and light-colored oil palm seeds. And it's actually the same gene that gives you red grapes and yellow grapes and, you know, and apples. So it seems that this gene has been mutated multiple times in evolution to give you fruit color differences, especially red, yellow, red, green color differences. And we've just found that in dates as well. Michael and other scientists on the project are trying to understand the genetics related to flavor and to fruit size and diversity and to which ones are better suited to North Africa. These are all sorts of things that could be helpful to date farmers. They're doing all of this by looking at patterns in the date DNA and comparing one variety to another. And then we use essentially uh, evolutionary genetic analysis to try to piece together the relationships between these different varieties in these different populations. And sometimes we can even time when different populations diverge from each other. And in so doing, we can piece together a picture of how these different populations are related to each other, but even more importantly, possibly provide ideas of how they may have spread from where we think they originated from, which is the Gulf area. That's their current hypothesis. But even with all the DNA he's gathered, Michael's big question, the big question about dates, where their wild ancestor came from and where humans began to cultivate them, that is still a mystery. He has pieced together some clues. A colleague of his looked into the genetics of what seemed like wild dates in Oman, and they were, in fact, genetically different from our common dates. They were still very closely related to cultivated dates, um, but they were genetically distinct. So that's the closest we've managed to find what could possibly, we don't think it's the ancestor, but maybe a very, very close wild 
uh, group of uh, dates. Frankly, Michael told us he's found that a lot of what seem like they could be wild date palms are actually just escapees from human cultivation. They're the descendants of previously cultivated dates that just kind of reverted back to their feral state. Nobody has seen the what I almost call the mythical wild ancestral date palm. And in fact, there are even suggestions that they don't exist anymore, that essentially the domesticated date is all we've got left, that it replaced all of these wild uh, ancestral dates. So uh, we're still looking, but we haven't found them yet. Uh, One area that would be interesting to look at is Iran, um, which unfortunately we don't have access to. Finding these wild ancestors is not just historically interesting, it's really important, actually for all crops, because the wild relatives often contain a whole lot of genetic diversity that has typically been bred out of cultivated crops but could be really useful. And so the search continues. But clearly dates were once wild somewhere, and then people did start to domesticate them somewhere, and those cultivated dates spread throughout the region. Because people loved them for all the reasons we just said. And as those early date farmers tended to their orchards and learned how to irrigate the trees to keep their feet wet, Nawal told us they also noticed that some of the trees didn't bear fruit. The male trees. They were freeloaders. By practice, they realized that one male date palm is enough for pollinating 50 females. So they allocated one male for 50 uh, females. That was a, a smart thing to do. I mean, why waste efforts and space for trees that do not produce uh, dates? <laughs> In a way, I say the uh, the female trees, they became like the harem of the male tree. And then the other thing people did throughout the Middle East was develop all sorts of different varieties with the whole range of textures and flavors. And we're going to taste a handful of them coming up after this break. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. You know that feeling when you try a new food for the first time and your mouth experiences these brand new flavors and sensations? It's like, wow, I didn't even know a food could do that. This happened to me when I went on this amazing trip to the northern tip of Queensland in Australia. We were so far north that we were off the country's electrical grid. And we were staying on a banana farm where they grew dozens and dozens of different kinds of bananas. In the morning, I woke up to a basket full of some of the most bananas bananas you can imagine. Red ones that were super soft and sweet like raspberries, and small finger-sized ones that were sort of floral, and even blue ones that tasted exactly like vanilla ice cream. Life's too short to pass up extraordinary experiences. And if you're ready to take your next big food adventure, go there with Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. If you're listening to our show, then you already know how vital good food is to the human experience. Trying something new can be a truly transcendent experience. Years ago, I visited northern Thailand with a friend. We ate such amazing local food there. So when the hotel where we were staying offered, quote, Western breakfast, or what they called Thai breakfast, I thought, sure, Thai breakfast. Basically, it was greens with a kind of savory fish sauce. I loved it, and it changed my life. It made me rethink what I'd prefer to be eating for breakfast. I've eaten a vegetable-forward breakfast nearly every day since then, and every morning I'm reminded of the incredible experience experiences I had in Thailand. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card, made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Finally, the part of the show where we get to play the field. How many different dates are out there? We don't know, right? Because we do not know how many varieties there are, especially how many uh, local varieties that are grown in only a particular oasis or region are available. There are estimates as low as 250 varieties in the world. There are estimates as high as 3,000 varieties. Yet another date mystery for Michael to help solve. Today, the biggest date variety in the world, at least in terms of production tonnage, is called the Deglet Noor. 
Deglet means date, and Noor means light. Nawal told us that Deglet Noors were discovered in the 1600s in an oasis in the Sahara in North Africa. They are kind of all-purpose dates, the dates that you use for, uh, you know, for making uh, cookies. They are not really impressive. They are like basic dates. We tasted them and we agreed they were kind of boring. The texture is a little dry. They're not particularly sweet. They're not necessarily something I'd want to eat plain by the handful. These are the dates that, on an industrial scale, get chopped up and used for bars and baked goods. If you buy dates as dates just to eat, what you're usually going to get is a medjool. Which is, of course, the queen of, of the dates. They are large. They are sweet. But I find, you know, their their shape is very impressive. But the taste is kind rather, you know, uh, it has no depth as compared with barhi. Barhi is different. They are, of course, smaller than medjool, but their taste, it has has had a depth of its own. It's chewy in texture. And it's like eating candy. There's the flavor of caramel in it. Medjools are indeed massive. They're like the hummer of dates, which is one reason they're popular. And they're a lot sweeter than Tegletnor. Definitely another reason to snack on them. But we are both 100% in agreement with Noel. Medjools are nothing compared to the Barhi. The date farm that Sonia visited, the one run by Chadros and his son Mark, they specialize in Barhi. You feel how soft it is? Right, so when you buy it into that, I mean, it is almost just going to melt in your mouth. And the people that know, know, right? They know what the best date is if they've had this. Barhees do just melt in your mouth. They're super mushy and fudgy and ridiculously delicious. It's ugly. I mean, it's a really, really ugly date. But, you know, sometimes things that are ugly taste delicious. I mean, what can you do? Life lesson here, people. Don't judge your date on looks alone. Barhee dates are originally from Iraq. They are from Basra. They were called barhi because from the humid wind that blows from the Gulf to the region called barah, so they called them barhi. These three varieties, Deglet, Nora, Medjool, and Barhi, these are the biggest in the U.S., but Nawal told us you can find dozens of different kinds in the markets in North Africa and the Middle East. All those varieties, they are given names by the farmers. Of the names I've known, for example, they used to call certain dates, that is in, in Iraq, they used to call certain days like uh, the nightingale eggs. And uh, there were other dates that were called the old ladies candy because they were so sweet and they, because they, they think that a toothless old lady would feel happy with those dates. There were some large ones that they, and they called them the mule's testicles. I mean, I I have read that the most expensive uh, date in in Egypt in the year 2009 was called uh, Obama. So, (laughs) you know, it depends upon, you know, on their shapes, on their colors, on certain occasions. Tadros has vivid memories from when he was a kid of all the different varieties of dates on sale in the market in Egypt. It's on carts or in a, a fruit stand. And then you just walk, because it's a huge market, everybody has different variety on pile. Then they use a newspaper and make it like a cone. Balah, balah. And that's, balah is in the translation for dates. Rotab, rotab, and this one's soft. Then balah rotab, then everybody just comes to see what he has in the day, what variety he has. We didn't get to shop in a market in the Middle East, but we did get a hold of seven unusual varieties. Okay, so we have Abada, we have Zahidi, Deglet, Kadrawi, Kadrawi, Brunette, Blonde, Black Beauty. I feel like Brunette and Blonde are kind of perfect for the date theme. Like, which would Sir prefer? (laughs) Blonde and Brunette are actually varieties that were selected in California in the 1920s. And we liked Blonde fine. It had a nice fudgy texture and a caramel taste. Mm, I like that. Happy about them. Mm-hmm. Blonde is great. Let's see how brunette stacks up. Mm-hmm. I'm rooting for brunette, to be honest. <laughs> Obvious, obviously, me too here. <laughs> I always root for the brunettes. Sorry, blonde. They got everything else. They don't need our support. Mm, the flavor is great. The, I like the texture on the blondes better. There's more a little like molasses note on mm-hmm. this, you know? 
Totally. That's a win for the brunettes, I think. Then the abada surprised us. It tasted a little like cherries and raspberries. It was totally different from the other dates. Zahidi dates are Iraqi originally, like barhis, and they were also very soft and squidgy and delicious. The Kudrawi date was like eating a caramel, literally. Just sweet, chewy, melty caramel in fruit form. And then we moved on to the deepest, darkest date of the bunch. It's called Black Beauty, and it's a date that's originally from Saudi Arabia. Mmm. Wow. Mmm. Has a denser texture. Oh, wow, Mm. but also the taste. Mm Mm-hmm. Mmm. Almost has, like, some coffee notes to it. Yeah, I feel like this is like a... It tastes already like a cake on its own. Totally. Wow, that is good. That's my favorite so far. Mm-hmm. Mm. The really surprising thing to me is how different these dates were. I had kind of thought a date was a date, but actually they're more like apples. Some are really good and some are red delicious. Even in my lab, the, the people who work on dates, each of us have our own favorite varieties. My favorite variety, for example, which is very hard to find in the West, is called sukari. It is a very sweet caramel-like consistency and taste. But the sad thing is, these are not the ones you'll find in the supermarket. Like we said, those are mostly medjools. Medjools can be tasty, sure, you can find some really good ones. But these unusual ones, you have to special order them. We got ours direct from farms in California. And California is where almost all the dates that are eaten in America are grown. Just a few hours drive from where I live in Los Angeles is a date palm mecca. Literally. But so how did dates cross the ocean and set up shop in California? And why do they hold camel races in the Southern California desert? Coming up after this break. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels. But now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. (laughs) I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. (laughs) I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. I can't even say it without laughing, because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. So people in the United States have been eating dates for a really long time. There's a record of Thomas Jefferson even handing out dates to his grandchildren. And there's some evidence that there were dates in and around the California missions, although they might have been planted so that we could get 
date palm fronds for religious ceremonies. But Sarah told us the first real attempt to bring commercial date farming to California is connected to food explorers who set out to travel the world in the late 1800s and send home all sorts of promising new crops to the U.S. government. We actually already did an episode all about them, and you should definitely go listen to it. In that episode, we focused on a food explorer called David Fairchild, and he comes up in the date story along with a colleague called Walter Swingle. David Fairchild voyaged all around the world for the USDA, and he sent home mangoes, cashews, broccoli, avocado, and more from places as far afield as Indonesia and mainland China. But he had his heart set on going to Baghdad. I think that Fairchild chooses Baghdad for a reason that's so important to the history of dates. It's that idea of American Orientalism. This idea that, you know, People in the United States had not been traveling to the greater Middle East, but they had been traveling in their imagination. And the two ways that they've been traveling to the greater Middle East in their imagination are one, through the Bible and religious stories, obviously set in the greater Middle East. The Bible wasn't particularly anything new, but there were a lot of other things going on in the 1800s. For one, there was a rush of interest in biblical archaeology. Europeans were exploring and digging at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and at Jericho. It really set people's imaginations aflame. But for two, this was also all tied in with Egyptomania. The Victorians were obsessed with all things Egyptian. Researchers deciphered hieroglyphs using the Rosetta Stone in the 1820s. But wait, that's not all. The book 1001 Arabian Nights, you know the one with Scheherazade telling stories every night, it was translated by a British scholar in the 1800s, and it was also a massive hit. When Scheherazade was done with her story, the sultan said, And to this sultan too, my queen, new things are revealed. A thousand and one nights have passed, and I have heard from you a thousand and one tales. And Fairchild talks about how when he was a child, he had heard these stories of a thousand and one Arabian nights. And the Baghdad of his imagination was so romantic and rich that he wanted to experience it. And he's one of the very first, one of the very few Americans who by 1900 had actually made it to Baghdad. So in the early 1900s, David Fairchild and Walter Swingle and a couple of other folks were scouring the Middle East, seeking out the best dates. And dates are like apples in another key way. They don't grow true from seed. So if you find a date you like, you need to chop off a little offshoot from the base, and that will grow into a tree that's basically a clone of its mother. David and Walter managed to convince locals to part with a few of these little mini date tree offshoots, which was not super easy. And they managed to bring them across the oceans, which also wasn't super easy. But they did, at the end, succeed in bringing some baby date trees to America. So when these dates get to the United States, there's some question about where is the best place to grow them. And some of the top contenders, basically Arizona and the deserts of Southern California. And what makes the Coachella Valley so spectacular for dates? It's that dates, the old adage says, need their head in the fire and their feet in the water. They require a lot of water and high heat. So as someone who grew up in the Coachella Valley, I can tell you it is very hot there in the summer. And the dates really like that. But they also need a lot of water. And so the Coachella Valley had pretty high aquifers underneath. This is actually due to the legendary San Andreas Fault that is probably maybe going to reduce L.A. to rubble one of these fine days. The San Andreas runs right through the middle of the Coachella Valley, and it seems to form an impermeable barrier underground, which causes groundwater to pool above it nearer the surface. And then also remember that dates hate rain during the growing season, and America's other would-be date region, Arizona, can have monsoon-style downpours, whereas the Coachella Valley is basically dry as a bone. This is really exciting to the people who create kind of this date culture and date agriculture because they've already sort of been trying to make the claim that the landscape of the Coachella Valley is America's Arabia, that it looks identical, that the weather is the same to the greater Middle East, so that you could essentially travel the world without 
leaving the state. This remaking of the very southeastern corner of California into a fake Middle East? It's a big project, and it didn't happen overnight. For one thing, the date trees had to go into quarantine first, so they didn't bring in disease. In 1927, Walter Swingle collected 11 offshoots of a particularly delicious date from Morocco called the Medjool. They seemed to be disease-free. But at the time, the date industry in Morocco was being destroyed by a fungus. Over a few years, it wiped out more than 15 million date trees in North Africa. And so in order to kind of prevent that... What we see is that the date palms that are brought in are quarantined, and they're quarantined on Native American land, and the caretakers are Native American. Eleven of these medjool trees were planted in Nevada, but disastrously, a dog dug up two of them, so then there were only nine. Those were transported to a USDA station in Indio, California, and then the offshoots of those trees were distributed around California and even back to the Middle East. Sarah says these Native American caretakers might have saved the medjool date for the whole world. Although, who knows? Medjool literally translates to unknown, so more than one day variety in the Middle East was called that. This is actually another one of the mysteries Michael is planning to use DNA to solve. It will be interesting to see if indeed all of the medjools of the world are the same and can be traced to the medjools that are now in the USDA collection in California. But in any case, the date trees that were planted in Indio matured, and then California's date industry started to take shape. Now, as the Coachella Valley's date industry grows, they see themselves benefiting from that association with the Orient. And so they're going to start to say, yes, eat these dates. They're so romantic and they're tied to the magic and luxury of the so-called Orient. Yes, this is drawing on very problematic stereotypes of the Middle East, but that's where the public imagination was back then. So if you look back to popular culture at the time, we see films and books, radio stories, and a lot of consumer culture focus on the greater Middle East as a place of luxury, as a place of very beautiful women, as a place of ancient wisdom. And that actually makes its way into the date marketing. Um, So there's an ad that says, taste a date like the dates have been on Cleopatra's lips. Or this wise old man says his daughter is very beautiful because all she does is eat dates. The burgeoning California date industry was very intentional about making the most of all this Egyptomania and the excitement about all things quote-unquote oriental. In fact, they were determined to capitalize on every single opportunity to boost this Arabic connection. The big excitement in the 1920s was the opening of the tomb of Tutankhamun, which was front-page news everywhere. Why they opened up his tomb the other day and jumped with glee. They learned a lot of ancient history. In old King There were dates found in King Tutankhamun's tomb. And when the Coachella Valley growers find this out, one of the major growers and boosters for the area actually writes to see if he could just like have some of these antiquity treasures, these dates that were preserved in King Tutankhamun's tomb. And he wanted to put them in his date shop so that when Um, visitors came by, they could see this relic of King Tutankhamun. That didn't work out for him. But if Americans at the time wanted a taste of King Tut's world, they could go to versions of the Middle East at the World's Fair. Millions of Americans visited World's Fairs all over the U.S., and you could visit reconstructions of Jerusalem or check out a version of Cairo or Baghdad. Mingling with the brisk tone of modern America, we find, too, the spice and flavor of the foreign. From Europe and the Orient come resplendent roofs of gold, Exotic reminders of different times and civilizations, adding their individual touches to the scintillant pageant that has made the World's Fair such a unique adventure. And you could see what was at the time called a hoochie-coochie dance, which we might refer to as a belly dance. People are familiar with um, Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. There's also um, a Wild East show where you can see Bedouin horsemen and um, what they're calling like Arab warriors 
And so it's things of popular culture. It's also film. Sadly, this was the 1920s, so these were silent films. But there's The Shake, which made Rudolph Valentino into a star and spawned a sequel, The Son of Shake. There's Salome, which was remade in the 50s. Marcellus, why do the gods favor you above all men to present you with so divine a gift as Salome? You could also travel to the Middle East in popular music at the time. My heart's in Arabia tonight, where stars shine bright on desert This was not just a temporary fad. The American fascination with all things Arabian and Middle Eastern continued for decades. And then one of the most fascinating things I found in my research was that in the 1950s and 1960s, Egypt is preparing to build a dam. And they know that the dam is going to flood treasures in parts of Egypt and Nubia. And so they don't have the funds really to secure a lot of those antiquities. And so the Egyptian authorities said, if you send over archaeologists and if you help finance the research, we'll do a trade. They offered to give a minor temple called the Temple of Dendor to whatever institution or city became their partner. Now, this isn't a story that many people remember, but Indio, California, where the dates are grown, is the number one contender to receive this temple. It's the number one contender because of a marketing campaign that locals have said, oh, we are America's Arabia. We have the same type of climate. How wonderful would this be in our hills? Because it would blend right in and you would feel like you're in Egypt. Spoiler alert, Indio did not get the Temple of Dendor. It's actually one of the treasures on display at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. So if you were to go into the Met today and see that Egyptian temple, this is the same temple we're talking about that for a lot of people, including major politicians, they thought it was going to end up in India. Where it could have been the centerpiece of America's Arabia, surrounded by date palms and In-N-Out Burger. Eventually, the dates from the Coachella Valley did become a huge success. And then even without the Temple of Dendor or dates from King Tut's tomb, the region also became a major tourist attraction. And if you were to winter in, let's say, Los Angeles and spend a few months there, part of that would be you would go out to Palm Springs. Maybe you'd take the train, maybe you'd drive. And if you were in Palm Springs, then you would definitely take the date Palm Highway and drive through these date groves, which felt to a lot of Americans as if it were a foreign place. We might see an Egyptian-styled date shop. We might see one in Palm Springs that's called the Black Tent, tying into this tent Bedouin imagination. We see um, Sniff's Exotic Date Gardens, which has this Moorish Middle Eastern architecture. And then part of the draw is that you go out into the back and you see the quote-unquote, only Bedouin tent in America. The date growers even renamed the local towns. And we see that the town of Walters becomes known as the town of Mecca. And Mr. Walters is not happy about it. He writes to a USGA scientist that he's pretty unhappy. It's been renamed Mecca. Um, We see towns called Oasis. We see towns called Edom, which is a reference to the Bible as well. Even the Salton Sea, which is a super saline shallow lake right atop the San Andreas Fault in the Coachella Valley, got roped into the Middle Eastern makeover. We see people talking about it as if it is the Dead Sea. And it is America's Dead Sea. And in that region that had been turned into America's Middle East and the American date palm capital, they also held a huge date festival every year that had camel races and beauty pageants with girls dressed as if they were Scheherazade. And so if you can picture I Dream of Genie from the 60s, that is often what this looks like. So it's quote-unquote harem girl outfits with bare midriffs and very sheer fabric. The date festival continues to this day, although it's become a little more family-friendly. One of the times I've seen in the past 10 years... It's community theater, mostly children, but instead of saying all the single ladies, they made a song to all the Persian ladies and danced as if they were Beyonce. So that's the local tourism side. But in terms of the fruit itself, date popularity in America grew as the date industry in the Coachella Valley grew, and it got an extra boost in World War II when sugar was rationed. So we do see kind of a peak around World War II with a lot of Americans eating dates. But I might say it's 
definitely having a renaissance now with the different types of diets, like the paleo diet, um, people who are trying to eat more whole foods are really turning to the date as a type of sweet that's very much less processed than other things they're eating. They're in just about every health bar as a natural sweetener. Uh, if you flip over the ingredient statement and look in the back, they're there. Uh, so the health bar market has grown the date industry quite a bit. Mark told us the deglets all go into health bars these days. And then for the medjools, Mark told us he sells a full 50% of his harvest around Ramadan. A huge surge around Ramadan. Typically, we'll have a huge surge, you know, coming into the Christmas holiday and then another huge surge come Ramadan. You know, we're seeing it more and more consumed year-round, but Ramadan is a massive push for date companies. You might be able to find dates in all those snack bars, but in general, dates really are still a specialty food for special occasions like Christmas and Ramadan. In part, it's because they're a special fruit. They take a lot of effort to grow. There is no product that is grown in the United States that is more labor-intensive than dates. I would compare this to saffron without the luxury of having that tremendously high price point. Mark told us he still does pretty much everything by hand. The first job of the year is dethorning the palms, then the trees flower, and it is pollination time. So we harvest that pollen. It looks like almost a big club. It's this big kind of bulbous brown club looking thing, and inside of it is uh, flowers that produce pollen. So we harvest the pollen from our trees by uh, cutting those clubs off, hanging them to dry, and then shaking them. And then we take a vacuum and vacuum all of the pollen back up through a almost like a screen door. And then that'll help kind of get rid of all of the um, flower leaves that fall in. Then we put them in these little puffers climb up the tree and puff some pollen on every single flower. When it comes time to harvest, that also is still really labor intensive. They go tree by tree and head up on a cherry picker. It's a machine that lifts people up to the tree height so they can pick by hand. They harvest just based on when the dates on that tree are ready. As we said earlier, one of their specialties is the yellow, hard, crunchy barhi. This is a thing I did not know at all about dates, but apparently, especially in their homelands in North Africa and the Middle East, People enjoy dates at different stages of ripeness. A barhi at the yellow stage is technically ripe, but it is nothing like the brown caramel squidginess I associate with dates. Uh, barhi, right, you've got two different ways of consuming it. In its yellow state, you're going to find some tannin. Tannin's what you'd find in a really strong cab. That's what dries out your palate. But once your palate starts to resalivate, that's when the taste buds on your and, and the rest of your mouth will activate. And that's where you start to pick up some of the sugars. That was so wild about tasting crunchy barhees. They really made my mouth pucker with all those tannins, like the kind you might experience in a really tannic, puckery red wine. And then after the dryness, I could taste just a little datey sweetness. But they did slowly soften out on the counter. They looked like bananas ripening. And as they softened, the tannins disappeared. And they even tasted kind of like ripe, mushy bananas, along with all those delicious caramel notes. Barhees are genuinely amazing. I'd say, you know, 50% of the customers consume them when they're crunchy. Then the other 50% will wait until they ripen and consume them that way. So there's all these varieties. And then there's the choice between eating your dates yellow and crunchy versus brown and squidgy, but that's not all. There's how you eat it. And when it comes to consuming dates, our experts are much more creative than I have ever been. How do I like to eat dates? Uh, if I'm eating with Jewel, I like to eat them from the freezer. To me, they taste better that way. They never really fully freeze, so you can bite into them really cold, and it's just a good experience. When my kids were teething, uh, I used to give them frozen dates to gnaw on. They loved it. Um, if you actually take kind of uh, ripening dates and you freeze them and then you eat them, they're like they're like little caramel ice cream balls. Michael had some tips from his travels too. Whenever I go to the Middle East, to Dubai or to Abu Dhabi, I will usually go to the store and I, I love ginger stuffed dates. So they're dried dates that have been stuffed with a small piece of candied ginger. I love those. Uh, or candied orange peel. I love those too. Nawal's book contains a handful of traditional date recipes. But, of course, I have, you know, my my favorites, like the cookies we used to prepare. Uh, we call it kleche, that was uh, filled with dates. Uh, other Arab countries, for example, they call it uh, ma'mul. In Egypt, they call it kahak. 
I particularly liked the kind of, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's halwa, kind of candy we make with the dried dates and uh, walnuts. As kids, we used to be asked to pound the dates with the walnuts in a mortar, and we, we enjoyed this task immensely. For just eating plain, Mark prefers the barhi, and then when it comes to cooking, he relies on the medjool, and he's come up with some pretty creative date dishes. It just dawned on me one time at the grocery store, there's that chicken apple sausage and i thought to myself well chicken date sausage would probably be better and it was so i ground the dates actually through a meat grinder and ground dates kind of look like a ground chicken thigh anyway uh mixed them in with some ground chicken thighs with uh, some sauteed shallots and a little bit of sauteed fennel and some seasoning and smoked them in my smoker they were phenomenal yes please Sarah told us she's a fan of that sausage date combo, too. I love dates. I, of course, love date shakes and I love date ice cream. But I have to say, and I think this surprises people, my favorite way to eat a date is in a savory food. I love cooking up some caramelized onions and adding in some dates and like maybe a poblano pepper. So you have a little bit of spice and then putting that on a hot dog or a hamburger. Um, I've had date hamburgers at some different restaurants and at the date festival, I suggested to Pink's Hot Dogs that they create a Indio date dog, which they did, and they put dates on it. Um, so it was a win to see the date dog on the menu for a little while, um, which was onions, dates, bacon bits, mustard, and a little bit of pepper. And it was delicious. For the end of the year, a special shout out and a huge thanks to a couple of our super spectacular fans who donate at a particularly high level, Monica Dongre and this is part of a holiday gift and it's a bit of an inside joke, but thanks to the 2.5 cats of the canal. Cats in Amsterdam along the canal, thank you. Truly, thank you everyone who supports the show. It is a really big piece of what makes this all possible. We literally would not be able to make this show without our listener supporters. And we would not have made this episode without the inspiration and hard work of our dearly beloved producer, Sonia Swanson. This is her last episode with us, and we somehow need to replace her. If that person is you, go to gastropod.com slash jobs right now. Thanks, of course, this episode to Tadros and Mark Tadros at Aziz Farms. Their barhees are truly outrageously delicious. Thanks also to Nawal Nasrallah, Michael Perugan, Sarah Seacates, and Deborah Thurkill at Arizona State University. Thanks also to Darin Jube, who taped the Iftar Feast in Jerusalem for us, and to Yadira at Shields Date Garden, who hustled to get us a bunch of different varieties. We are going to be taking a brief break. Not a break from working on the show because we're going to be hard at work choosing a new producer and also doing research and interviews and generally starting to make all the episodes you'll be hearing in 2022. But that means we'll be back in your feeds with an encore show and some highlights from other shows we like in January. And then we'll be back with a brand new episode in February. Happy holidays and all our best for a lovely start to the new year. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. You, dear listener, already know about the transformative power of food. You're probably thinking about food right now, aren't you? Look, we get it. Sometimes a craving is more than a craving. It's a calling that you have to indulge, even if it takes you thousands of miles to get there. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card, made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Socks brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. <laughs> 